Alderman Antonio French has spent more than a decade documenting and injecting himself into the political discourse within St. Louis. And now he's facing his biggest challenge yet, becoming the city's next mayor. The 21st Ward Democrat joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is on assignment this morning. So we have as my two special guest hosts. I'm Rachel Lippman, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. And I'm Jenny Simone. I'm the Diversity Fellow with St. Louis Public Radio. We are continuing our series that is affectionately known as the Melee for, May- <laughs> Melee for Mayor <laughs> podcast series. So we have as our special guest today. Antonio French, uh, alderman from the 21st Ward and candidate for mayor. I have to say I've been very excited to do this podcast because out of all the mayoral candidates, I think I've known you the longest. I think <laughs> we've right. known each other since your pub def days back in 2006, 2007. And, Way back when. And uh, now you're running for mayor. We've all grown up since the mid-2000s, haven't we? We have, indeed. <laughs> You've come a long way. I'm very proud of you. Uh, well, I'm very proud of you, although I'm just saying that now to suck up to you before I hit you with hard questions. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Laying the ground. Yeah, it's all a setup. You're like a frog in the boiling water. So um, before we get to issues, we want our uh, we want our guests to give the voters of St. Louis a sense of who these candidates are. So if if we have a few minutes, tell the people of St. Louis about your your personal and professional background. Sure, sure. Um, You know, I'm born and raised right here in St. Louis. I've got deep roots in this city. Uh, my grandmother moved on the 4500 block of Athlong uh, in 1965. In uh, 1966, my other grandparents moved two houses down. That's actually how my mom and dad came to met to meet and uh, and how I came to be. And so now I am raising my family on the same block. Uh, my little boy, uh, six years old, uh, and my wife, uh, Yasenka, a Bosnian immigrant, uh, we have located right on the same block where I grew up. And so, you know, when I came back to St. Louis after college, I went away to Auburn University. Uh, I got my uh, bachelor's in political science. You know, I decided to come back and move to the neighborhood I grew up in uh, to try to roll up my sleeves and make my city a better place. Uh, It started with uh, journalism, as you remember. Um, You know, I I started writing on um, the political landscape of the city uh, and some of the stories from a perspective, I think just was not being, uh, was not around at that time. Because you used video extensively. And one of the things that I've said about you is you were one of the first people to use video to document both the St. Louis and Missouri political scene. Now that that seems kind of, you know, who cares now, but back in 2006 and 2007. It's kind of a big deal. It was a big deal. And to be honest, after watching what you were doing, it inspired me to do a lot of video too. So again, 
the praise comes before the fall, so to speak. But well, yeah, I think Pup Def was kind of influential on that. I even remember uh, telling a local reporter, having a conversation, and saying, "Hey, man, there's this thing. Uh, it's called YouTube, and like, you know, you can put videos up here. It's really you guys should use this." But but, yeah. I, but one of your and for vid- the record, it was nobody in this room. <laughs> nobody in this room. And one of your videos featured like a, a, a collage of legislative pictures to a, a Timberland song, and Tom Villa was pulling up his pants repeatedly, and I think he actually saw that and wondered what the hell that was exactly. <laughs> I think I might have sparked his suspender uh, fad. But no, I mean, it was it was interesting because it, uh, you know, it added humor and it, I think it made politics more accessible. Uh, you know, it, there's very limited people who want to read a very long story about local politics. But when you uh, add video and set it to music, uh, you know, it, it expands the audience. And I think it was good because it, it got more people uh, informed and interested in local politics. And how did you make the decision to go from writing about it and observing it to being an active participant in the the ruckus, the melee, the mess, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. Um, you know, everything I've done uh, is really about trying to change the city and make it a better place and using whatever tool that I have available at the time to do that. So at one point, it was about uh, using the Internet and using journalism and using blogs to be able to inform people and, and have them make better decisions. Then I got more directly involved and started actually managing uh, and consulting on political campaigns and help get some good people elected across the city. Uh, and then I took a look at my home neighborhood and said, we need to change right here uh, where I live and decided to put my own hat into the ring, so to speak. And uh, I ran for Democratic committee man against a very longtime incumbent. Uh, many people said I couldn't win that race. Uh, he'd been there forever. But we won that race by about 15 points. And then uh, a few months later, I decided to run for alderman uh, again against an, an incumbent. And, and we beat her by about 20 points. Um, I wanted to... I, you know, with all these conversations about fake news and like as somebody who's come from journalism background, how do you think that's impacted your relationship with the media, but also how you're able to deliver messages to the people that you're trying to recruit for votes? Yeah, you know, uh, what, what we've seen happen in um, not just journalism, but in society over the last 15, 20 years has been this kind of empowerment of the individual. And so people now have within their pocket, you know, through these smartphones and internet and everything, uh, the ability to get their thoughts and their perspective out to a huge audience very quickly. Now, for the most part, I think that's very good um, because it, it gets, you know, you get to see perspectives that you normally would not get. Um, but there's also a flip side to that. Uh, that is that you have to be careful about the information you're consuming. You know, it, it makes you have to do a little bit more work on your end as the consumer of information to make sure it's coming from a good place. Um, you know, the good time, the good part we saw, uh, what I think was demonstrated during the Ferguson uh, uh, stuff, where you got uh, a story that was not being um, covered that much, uh, all of a sudden through social media spread across the world very quickly and got the world's attention. And it was able to bring attention to issues that had been uh, really ignored for too long here locally in St. Louis. But as we've seen with the uh, with uh, the last election, there there's also a flip side to that where completely false information can spread well, there, very quickly. There was a lot of misinformation during the Ferguson unrest too. Sure, um, maybe on the anti-protester side, but I also remember there were instances where activists tweeted out tweets saying somebody had been shot yeah. or somebody had been killed. And it turned out not to be there true. There were raids on churches, on buildings, things like that. Yeah, where... I remember uh, uh, a high-profile um, activist had tweeted that uh, police had just shot the mother of uh, someone who had been shot uh, before. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I had to quickly um, uh, ob object to that and tell them that was false information. You know, it, it just adds a responsibility to people to be careful about where they're getting their information from. And what happens is that very quickly, um, you know, people start developing who are trusted sources and who are not. And that's the same for individual uh, tweeters or bloggers and, frankly, news networks now. Now, before we get into issues, I do want to talk a little bit more about your Ferguson activism because you gained national notoriety for that. Your, your Twitter follower count went up to over 100,000. And I think you got a lot of praise for for being there, but you also got criticism from elected North St. Louis, Louis County leaders for basically saying you were interloping in a situation where you didn't belong. With that backdrop, why did you decide to get involved in that, and how did you react to some of the criticism that you shouldn't have been there? You know, first it was uh, uh, unexpected, uh, all the uh, attention and everything that came from from that situation. Um, you know, I've made it a practice since I've been an alderman to, uh, to go to crime scenes. I go to crime scenes uh, uh, when I know that um, you know, especially because of this broken relationship between police and community, very often people uh, know me, recognize me, and trust me for my reputation. That they'll give information to me that they may not want to give to uh, the police. And so, when I had heard um, from a, actually from a tweet that uh, a young man had been killed down the street from me, now keep in mind uh, the place where Mike Brown uh, was killed uh, versus where I live is about two miles down one road down West Florissant. So I hopped in the in the car to go down uh, to see for myself what was happening and to see, um, you know, if I can again be that conduit. And what I saw was very different from any crime scene that I had ever seen before. Uh, and we all know the story from there. Um, you know, I never went out there to be uh, some kind of a, a voice. What I went out there to do is to one see if I can can help, uh, and then when things became violent, to see if I can help make the peace. And then when I saw a situation that just uh, really looked like people's civil rights were being completely ignored, uh, I started tweeting uh, to get this story out there. Primarily, at that time, you know, I had about two or 3,000 Twitter followers. It wasn't very many. And many of them were local reporters. So I was hoping to get local reporters to get down there to kind of pay attention uh, to what was happening. And, you know, we all know where it went from there. I think a lot of, um, I think there was some uh, local officials who felt that uh, they were being, uh, uh, undermined or they didn't like that their authority was being um, undermined in some way. You know, this is what I say, is that uh, I believe that this is one St. Louis. You know, we live in a, a community uh, that, uh, you know, it, beyond geography of municipalities or uh, county lines, uh, we all live in St. Louis, and anything that occurs affects us all. And so my question for folks who uh, complained about me being down there was not you know, it, it, the question is, why weren't you down there? You know, if, if I'm not the kind of guy that watches something like that on television in my home community and not go out there and try to do something. So when we were out there in the middle of the night uh, standing up against uh, looters trying to go into buildings, and in some cases going into burning buildings, putting out fires with uh, two-liter bottles of soda, uh, we put out the, uh, the call for leaders to come, and very often uh, it wasn't answered, and that was disappointing. But, you know, we, we, we tried to do what we can do, and I think, uh, I think the presence helped more than it hurt. Can I ask you, uh, for a lot of people, I've covered some of the protests and some of the people who are in those activist circles who were there in Ferguson initially and continue to protest after that um, and have continued those efforts to try to fight for equality and racial justice and everything under the sun. But um, 
a lot of their critiques of people who were there initially are that they didn't stay and they didn't follow through. So yeah, I share that critique. What for you? I mean, like, where have you proven that you're actually following through with all of those? Oh, well, uh, when when the cameras long left, we remained. Uh, you know, my heel SDL office stayed there for two years. <laughs> two years. Is it still there? Or is it gone? We we uh, I closed it uh, just before the campaign. It was oh. just a little bit too much to maintain okay. that okay. while also the campaign. Continue. So we closed the office on West Florissant uh, about ninety days ago. Uh, but we were over there for there for over two years, uh, you know, helping to support efforts, uh, you know, helping, to, um, you know, smaller uh, nonprofits, helping uh, activists, um, you know, doing voter outreach and voter information and voter registration. Uh, but, yeah, you know, a, a lot of folks, you know, even among the activist community, um, you know, just kind of started bouncing from crisis to crisis across the country. And you have to be somewhere. You have to be committed to a place long enough to affect long. Are you going to say names? No, okay. <laughs> but uh, but I will say this is that, you know, um, you know, you have to be committed to a place long term uh, to affect change. None of these things are going to happen very quickly. And I know that going into it is that this is going to require a long term commitment, which is why we set up Heal STL to really be able to do that on a long term basis. Is there anything you're doing right now, though? If, if that's closed already? Yeah, the, the main thing is uh, our work here in St. Louis City. Uh, you know, again, these are, these are the same issues. You know, what happened in Ferguson could happen anywhere in our St. Louis region. And in fact, these are the same issues uh, in the county as they are in the city. And so what we're doing in the city, uh, especially in 21st Ward with our North Campus Project, is really trying to work directly with youth to give them options um, to be more successful in life and to prepare them on how to deal with this world uh, that in many cases did not value their lives as much as others. Uh, and so it's all about empowerment. It's all about long-term commitment. And it's also about transforming the conditions of these neighborhoods uh, that lead to these, uh, these crises uh, in the first place. to use something that you said kind of uh, towards the beginning of this conversation to circle into some of the issues we want to talk about. You talked about the broken relationship between the police department and some of the neighborhoods. You become mayor. What's the first thing that you do and what is the mayor's role in helping heal that broken relationship? Well, number one, I think the mayor has to accept responsibility. We have to have a mayor that accepts, accepts responsibility and, um, and ultimately accepts that the buck stops with him or her. Um, and we don't have that. We don't have someone either in the mayor's office or, in my opinion, in the uh, chief's position that accepts responsibility for, number one, making sure every neighborhood in the city of St. Louis is a safe place uh, and that the quality of life is as such where you know children have an opportunity regardless of what side of town uh, they live on. Uh, so what I've called for is on day one, I think we need a new police chief. Uh, I think uh, Chief Dotson has really... Uh, made a made it impossible to repair this broken relationship he's burned so many bridges both with the community and elected officials key figures that we need uh to be partners in rebuilding uh, our city uh, and so i think for the first time in st louis history we need to open up a national search for a police chief someone who is uh free from uh, the culture i think that has uh, divided us and has not uh, allowed for this relationship uh to you know be best as possible uh, we need to find somebody with a proven record uh, for being able to not only make communities uh, and cities like St. Louis safer, but also realizes how important it is to build and maintain that relationship between community and police. Because, frankly, police cannot be successful if they don't have that relationship or trust with the community. You know, in St. Louis City, uh, most murders go unsolved. 
Over 50% of homicides are presently unsolved. Uh, the biggest reason for that is because the police don't have a, r a relationship with the members of those communities most affected by violence who can help uh, find the perpetrators of the violence. And so we have to rebuild that relationship. And we also have to understand that, you know, it doesn't matter how many uh, officer-friendly days we do or ice cream truck events. Uh, if the city does not hold uh, those very few police officers who break the law, who go uh, beyond the law and injure, hurt, and in many cases kill uh, citizens, if we don't hold them accountable, we are throwing away years of efforts to rebuild those relationships. And so what people were protesting for uh, on the streets of Ferguson and continue to protest for across the country uh, is accountability and uh, still haven't gotten it. And so I think it's uh, important to have people in these critical positions, uh, both the mayor, both the public safety director, and both the police chief, uh, that value rebuilding that relationship and uh, above all. One of the things I've noticed uh, from traveling around different parts of St. Louis is I think the perception of police is different depending on where you go. Hugely. Like in my neck of the woods in the 16th Ward, even before, you know, this horrible situation where the, uh, a Sergeant Tom Lake was, was shot, support for law enforcement is pretty high. And philosophically, people around there support the police. It's a 99% white neighborhood. It's middle to upper middle class. But the, the sentiment is there. And then I'm, I'm sure that it's replicated in other parts of the south side and even parts of the north side where they have good relationships with the police. Sure. But then you go to other places, the relationship seems to have broken down considerably. Why do you think that is? Well, let me first say is that um, <clears throat> I, I would not interpret um, a demand for accountability as a lack of support for police. Okay, those are not mutually exclusive things. Uh, you know, my neighborhood, my community is very supportive of police. In fact, one of the top uh, requests we get is for more police, mm -hmm. more money for police, more pay, better pay for police. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we want a level of accountability. We want to make sure that when that those very few officers who do uh, go a uh, beyond the law, uh, hurt or kill or break the law, that they are held accountable. Uh, now, you ask why there are different opinions across the city. Uh, I find, in my experience, that that is true on many different subjects, is that St. Louis is often a city of bubbles, and your St. Louis experience is defined by the neighborhood you live in. And so many people in, say, a Holly Hill neighborhood, um, may not see very much uh, crime and violence. Um, and so they think that St. Louis is a safe place uh, and that the police are doing a great job uh, and that, you know, if they call 911, the officer arrives. Now, if you go across town to College Hill uh, in the 6th District, which is less manned, has less police officers, and I, I believe those officers are much overworked, uh, it's a very different experience. They feel that the city of St. Louis is a dangerous place, uh, and they feel that they call 911 and they get put on hold. Uh, they feel that uh, they see drug dealers and prostitutes outside and nothing's being done. And so what we have to do is have uh, leaders, and especially somebody occupying Room 200, a mayor, who understands the different needs of all our neighborhoods and recognizes that there are different experiences in St. Louis, but you as a mayor have to be representative of the entire city. Uh, and you have to be able to act as a personal bridge uh, to bring our city together to make sure that we understand that, look, even if you don't live in College Hill, uh, you have to recognize that the suffering going on in that neighborhood affects our city. And even if you don't live in Holly Hill, you have to recognize that uh, their experience is critical to the success of our city because if we start losing those people and keep losing those people, our city will not be successful. I'm glad you brought up bubbles because as somebody who's not from St. Louis and is new to the area, 
all of the municipalities are extremely overwhelming. The fact yeah. that there's this huge divide between city and county and that, you know, you drive from one place to another and you pass through like a hundred of them, or that's what it appears and feels like. It, it, it can be overwhelming, even yeah. to the locals. <laughs> so where do you stand on um, trying to integrate the two and or, I mean, you're saying if you don't support that, then how would you be that personal bridge? Yeah, so... Um, so it's a couple of questions in there. Number one is about the city, you know, being a personal bridge between uh, the very uh, big differences that we have between quality of life from neighborhoods from one end of the city to the other. Uh, and again, that requires a mayor who is not satisfied that we are just uh, meeting the needs of a few. Uh, that is only satisfied if the quality of life in every neighborhood in the city of St. Louis um, is meeting the standards that we all want for our own kids and our own families. Uh, but I think your, your larger question is about the region. Uh, now, that's a bigger question. So we have a very fractured region. I think we all can agree on that. Uh, what we don't agree is on the, the best way to remedy that. Now, I, I for one, think that um, there needs to be some consolidation within St. Louis County. Uh, I think having um, you know, a town with uh, a quarter of the population of the 21st Ward uh, and having their own mayor, their own police department, uh, their own board of aldermen, uh, doesn't make much sense. And in fact, um, by design, you know, those cities can only function by preying on people that pass through them and ticketing them because that's really their only source of revenue. They don't even have the tax base to sustain themselves. That creates a problem. Um, and so there's this uh, this idea or this um, opinion that has been floating around for many years about the idea of St. Louis City finally rejoining St. Louis County. Uh, I don't support the idea of St. Louis City becoming the 91st municipality in St. Louis County. I don't think that's a good idea. I, I think there is some opportunity for consolidation within the, reason, re within the region and definitely some room for cooperation between the city and the county. But I think there has to be some consolidation in St. Louis County first. And I have not seen the proposal yet uh, where uh, the city and the county would merge uh, in a way that would actually improve the quality of life of St. Louis City residents. Uh, and so I'm open to the idea, but I haven't seen that proposal that actually improves our quality of life. And I would want to see some consolidation done among the 90 municipalities in St. Louis County first. Uh, the, the question I've been asking all the candidates is, I think that there's a, a likelihood that within the next four years, someone like Rex Singfeld may fund a statewide initiative that decides this question as opposed to letting St. Louis and St. Louis County voters decide this question. Yeah, I, I would oppose that. that. It should not be done that way. Uh, no one should get around the people who are most affected by the decision uh, and have the decision being made by outstate Missouri. Yeah. That is not the way it should be done. Well, it has to be a conversation that lasts a long time in a way that convinces both St. Louis City people and St. Louis County people that it's in our best interest. Now, if it was put on the ballot right now in St. Louis County, I think it would fail. Mm -hmm. I don't think they want the, you know, 300,000 Democrats joining uh, St. Louis County and 150,000 poor people. Mm -hmm. uh, and in St. Louis City, I think it is a very divide, divided issue. I think uh, in some communities, they think that the, the solution to all our problems is jump, jumping in the county. But if you go to other parts of town, uh, especially parts where they're very familiar with North County, uh, they'll say, well, the St. Louis County isn't doing that great a job dealing with our issues either. So it, it's got to be um, uh, an effort to convince uh, and to, uh, to convince people locally that it's actually going to improve our quality of life. Now, before we get to development, I do want to ask a devil's advocate question on the consolidation question, which I've asked you before. There are some political leaders, particularly African-American leaders in the county, who feel that consolidation is a way of breaking political power 
of the African-American community in St. Louis County. And many of these small cities are where African-American politicians get their start for county or state government. How would you respond to that idea that getting rid of some of these cities also crushes African-American power up there? Well, I think this. um, I think that um, the effect on the African-American community, uh, both in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, has to be taken into consideration on any consolidation talks. Now, the fact is this, is that the majority of St. Louis uh, African-American population used to live in St. Louis City. That is no longer the case. Most African-Americans in St. Louis have now moved into St. Louis County. But they are so divided among so many different municipalities that they effectively have very little political power. Uh, and so that is a problem for the African-American. I mean, they just elected a, a county councilwoman, uh, uh, you know, Rochelle Walton Gray. So I think that's an example of their political power. Well, they still represent a minority, and we'll see how far their political power goes uh, as, as far as how North County is treated. But uh, the fracturing of uh, North County uh, uh, black population is a problem, I think, uh, for the, Afri- the greater African-American community. Still, the most vocal uh, African-American leaders come from St. Louis City, even though that's not where the majority of African-Americans live in our region anymore. So there has been this kind of uh, separation between black population and black political power. Uh, and so, yeah, that has to go into any consideration about um, consolidation. to something that is often also talked about as sort of a, a regional issue and quite a bit uh, more recently, uh, the, the use of incentives and the way that the city incentivizes development. Um, what's, your, what's your stance on that? How is the city using this appropriately? What would you change in room 200 if you were elected in terms of the way that the city deals with developers? So um, to answer your question, no, I don't think the city uses it appropriately. I think these uh, incentives were designed uh, to be targeted to uh, blighted areas. Uh, we now have a, a regular situation where uh, areas in the most influent parts of town are uh, legally deemed blighted just so they can get uh, these resources. Meanwhile, neighborhoods that are without a doubt blighted um, uh, aren't seeing very much attention. Uh, Look, so the last 15 years uh, of the Slay administration, we have seen almost exclusively attention along that central corridor. And and really good things have happened. I mean, what we see, uh, you know, with the cortex development and some things that have happened downtown have been uh, good for the city. Uh, But in the meantime, it has not kept up with the losses that we have had in both South St. Louis and North St. Louis neighborhoods. You know, the city of St. Louis has lost another 80,000 people in the last 16 years. That is not a pace, uh, a population loss that we can uh, sustain. We have to turn it around. We have to make our neighborhoods places where people want to move into instead of moving out of. And a single stadium deal downtown is not going to do it. What people are looking for in their neighborhoods uh, is a high quality of life, uh, and the top two reasons that people move out of the city of St. Louis is, number one, crime. That is both real crime, that is they are the victim of crime or their families are the victim of crime, or the general perception of crime, that, that it's just not as safe as it used to be in the city. And the number two reason is education, the quality of schools. Uh, there's a hidden tax for so many middle-class folks who live in St. Louis that in order to get a quality education, you have to pay for private school. Uh, many folks elect to just move to the county into a better school district. 
and so um, we have to use our incentives and the tools that we have to start building up neighborhoods. It can't just be about making St. Louis the playground for folks in the suburbs. We have to make St. Louis City work for people who live in the city. You make it so easy to segue into all the questions that well, we want to well, ask. Well, I do want to ask a, a, maybe a stylistic question sure. because in a lot of your videos, you've talked about being a mayor for both sides of Del Mar. Very and I understand, I understand what you're saying there because the majority of the African-American population lives north of Del Mar, but a large population of African Americans also live south of Del Mar and southeast St. Louis. Well, so I'm wondering if that phraseology kind of ignores that reality to no, some no, extent. No, no, I would say first um, you have to look beyond race. Okay, mm-hmm. so St. Louis City is divided uh, by race, but we're also divided by class and economics. Uh, yeah, that's what I meant to say as well. Yeah, we'll and so uh, clearly the quality of life, the economics, um, are there's a gross disparity between one side of Del Mar and the other side of Del Mar. And so, again, most of the African-American population 25, 30 years ago lived north of Del Mar. Uh, But many folks have left uh, to seek better lives as the quality of life deteriorated. Many moved to South St. Louis. Most moved to North County. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's not just about race. It's also about class and economics. We cannot operate or be successful as a city if half of our geography uh, is not deemed a place where you would want to live. You know, if it's not deemed a place where most people want to live. We have to build up these neighborhoods. And let me let me just say, too, is that issues of poverty, especially concentrated poverty, concentrated crime, have spread. It used to be just north of Del Mar. That's no longer the case. That's the point I'm trying to make. Oh, yeah. You obviously. go to an area like Dutchtown or, uh, you know, areas around Cherokee Street. Uh, you know, folks are suffering. And so we are letting uh, the cancer of poverty and uh, and crime spread instead of addressing it. And so the largest amount of murders in the city still happen north of Del Mar. And if we are serious about reducing violent crime, we have to change the characteristics of those neighborhoods that have seen the highest rate of violence. Uh, there's 15 neighborhoods, 12 of them are in North St. Louis and three are in South St. Louis. Uh, and so that's my primary focus is reducing the level of violence and crime in the city. I feel like, yeah, reducing crime, the two things that you named, right, are crime and education. Mm-hmm. And I just recently learned that mayor, the mayor doesn't actually have any direct control over the education system, right? Like there is a lot of influential power, but not necessarily like you can't decide Correct. things about it. Um, so as mayor, how would you be trying to influence changes within the public school system, especially as a parent. Yeah. So uh, you're right. So the mayor does not control the public schools here in St. Louis City. It's different than other cities. Um, But what we can do is uh, in the mayor's office is, number one, take a look at the neighborhoods that we are most trying to transform. Uh, Again, I would start with those 15 neighborhoods that have seen the highest crime rates. One of the things that you have to do in order to transform the quality of life in those neighborhoods is to make sure there's quality education uh, within walking distance primarily uh, in those neighborhoods. Now, that's also home. Those neighborhoods are also home to some of the worst performing schools in our city. Uh, And in many of those neighborhoods, we now have more vacant school buildings than we have open school buildings. And so as the mayor, one of the things I will be doing is working with the St. Louis Public Schools to make sure that we take these vacant school buildings and get them back online, either as uh, developments for residential housing, but also possibly getting uh, educational 
uh, opportunities in those buildings too. And that may be in the form of a school, but it also may be in the form of after school and support services for kids. What we do over in, in our neighborhood with North Campus is recognize that what happens in the school day is very important, but what happens after school and on the weekend can be just as powerful. And so I think the mayor working with the Parks and Recreation Department, working with St. Louis Public Schools, working with uh, uh, private industry to raise funds can help change the educational opportunities of neighborhoods in the city. And I'm asking this to all the candidates. You have a you have a son. Where do you send your son to school? I'm a proud public school parent. My uh, my wife and I send our kid to Wilkinson mm-hmm. uh, Elementary, which is really a, a great school on the on the south side. Mm-hmm. Um, we would love to be able to have a quality school right in our neighborhood, um, but the school uh, is one of the lowest performing schools in the state. Well, this is close this, to us right this now. This is why I'm asking this question more than just revealing your, your personal choices. As a, as a father of a three-year-old that lives in the city, I very much want to send B-bomb to a St. Louis public school. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spend a lot of money on a private school. I don't want him to be going to a racially or economic homogenous school. Yeah. But I think the challenge to making sure the St. Louis public school system stays in the accredited zone is convincing people like me, who are white, middle, and upper-class St. Louis residents, to send them to public schools as opposed to charter or private schools. As mayor, how are you going to be able to make that message? Well, first of all, um, you know, you're the target audience here, okay? So you you have a a child, uh, will soon be school age, and for many people uh, making that choice, that's around the time they decide to move out of the city Uh, because you either go to a, a, a place with a better school district or you say, look, I'm going to have to pay a lot of money to send my kid to a private school. So number one, as mayor, I'm going to do what I'm going to do right now is highlight really good schools. So for you, I recommend Wilkinson. Okay. It's a very high-performing school. Um, my wife and I are very involved there. Uh, we're very happy with the quality of education, uh, and we work to make it better. Uh, and for the lower-performing schools, uh, the mayor's office does have some power to help bring the resources um, to help improve the quality of education in those lower-performing schools. Those lower-performing schools, especially the ones that are located in those 15 neighborhoods that have seen the highest crime rates, uh, it's, it's critical that we turn that around. It can't be up to St. Louis Public School alone, no more than it can be the, to the police alone to change the characteristics. This has to be a partnership. And this is why in my comprehensive plan, which is available at comprehensiveplan.org, uh, you can see what we're talking about as far as transforming these neighborhoods and educational opportunities, including after-school programs, uh, uh, recreation uh, centers that are open in those communities to the late hours are critical to being able to improve the quality of life for kids in our city. Now, that leads me to my next question. The comprehensive plan came about during the entire Rams situation, Mm -hmm. where basically the members of the Ways and Means Committees extracted concessions to get a more robust minority contracting scheme. Um, Scheme is not the right word, but, you know, project. Mechanism. Mechanism. Yeah. I I did not mean that derisively. And also the agreement to the comprehensive plan. Now, you've garnered some criticism for voting for that, but... I, also, this is relevant because the MLS stadium Scott is it, in the Scott Trade si- situation is is happening like tomorrow. So, give me kind of your perspective as mayor of how you would deal with these stadium situations because you're on record as voting for one, and I think you're on record 
uh, being against this MLS situation. I want the listeners to know what your mindset was for both of those things. Yeah, I appreciate the question because this is uh, it, it is a little bit more complicated than uh, than a soundbite can make it. So let me tell you first is that uh, as an alderman, it has been incredibly frustrating uh, uh, that given the needs of our city, uh, in the last 15 months, the mayor has given us not a proposal to increase uh, uh, money for police or to uh, add more officers on the street or to make our city safer. He's given us not one, but three uh, stadium proposals. And on the way out the door uh, is talking about a sales tax increase and not one dime can be used for more cops. So it's frustrating. And so um, back then, uh, as you recall, the city had entered into a really dumb deal uh, about 25 years ago that said that we had to uh, upgrade the dome um, or build a new dome or let the team go. And so when, uh, when Slay brought this to us, number one, I, I joined uh, other aldermen and introduced a bill that said that we wanted to go to a public vote. Uh, the majority would not let that out of committee, so it died. So then we called on the, ch- on the mayor to make sure this goes to a public vote. He said no. Uh, and so it fell onto the Board of Aldermen to make a decision. So what we did was hold the bill uh, and use it as a leverage to force the mayor to finally address the issue of crime in the city. Uh, so we sat down, not with him personally, but with his chief of staff, uh, to formulate what we called a, a comprehensive crime plan. Uh, we got that. We also got um, the, the largest um, concessions for minority participation on any project in the city of St. Louis history. So if that dome was going to get built, or if that new stadium was going to get built, it was going to uh, really improve a lot of people's lives, uh, people who have been trying to get into trade industries for a long time. And so at the end of the day, number one at the Board of Aldermen, if you um, if a sponsor is so kind as to give you control of their bill and make vast changes, you got to vote for it. Uh, and number two is that what we recognize is that we put language in there that if the city was going to put in $70 million, one dime would not go towards it unless it was matched by over a billion dollars uh, coming from private uh, and state funds. Um, and so what we know is that we had an owner who had made public that he wasn't interested in putting a dime uh, into uh, staying in the city. And in fact, we had a, he had a contract that said he didn't have to spend a dime. And so what we were willing to do was do what I called uh, the first step of a multiple step dance. So we, w- we made the first step. And if Kroenke made an, uh, uh, another step and if the state came in, then we could we could dance. We made the first step, and it died real quick. Uh, the uh, the owner made it very clear that he was not interested As in dancing. As Sharon Tyus said, we threw money at the stripper, and the stripper, stripper threw, threw the back. money back. The stripper threw the money that back. That was one of the greatest political <laughs> listen, quotes of all time. But listen, but politi- politically, though, though, it is if the city did not act in any way, then Kroenke um, would, would claim forever that he left because the city did nothing. Uh, and so people, I think, clearly saw that the city was willing to do something and, you know, Kroenke uh, was not willing to do anything. Now, this differs greatly from these current deals. Uh, these current deals don't have the same, um, the same concessions that we worked into the bill. Uh, these don't require as large of uh, private investment. And, in fact, they have no county and no state money. And so it cannot be on the city of St. Louis alone to, uh, to build all the amenities of the region. Mm-hmm. If the county isn't chipping in, if the state isn't chipping in, I can't support Do it. Do you think the county should just spring up and chip in out of the goodness of its heart? Because it doesn't seem like SCSTL has done the robust engagement necessary for that to occur. Well, I, I think, uh, I think you, the argument can be made that the, uh, the ownership group has not worked very um, hard or well to build the coalition that they need to build to get this done. 
uh, and that they are relying upon uh, uh, the current mayor in his final days to uh, to grant their their wishes like a genie. But that's not going to happen. Uh, and so to the idea that they're going to spring a deal on the Board of Aldermen uh, and we're going to vote on it in 24 hours is, is, is just not uh, So you're likely. a no on that right now. I'm a no. It's an awful deal. Uh, it cannot be on the city taxpayers alone to bear the burden of these stadiums. You're opposed to the public money going to the stadium. What about the the sales tax that would trigger the use tax? So you've got the sales tax increase for the economic development. Um, Are you viewing that as a separate issue or do you still think that that's that's a bad deal? I, uh, you know, I am not a big fan of uh, of how this sales tax is currently written. Now, it's being billed as a Metrolink sales tax. Now, the problem is, is that you're promising something you can't deliver. Uh, number one, the plan is not even finished to, to say what exactly the route would be or how much it would cost. But what we know is that the sales tax alone is not even close to being able to pay for what people uh, are thinking they're going to get. That's going to be a problem down the road. Uh, number two is that, um, you know, what often happens in city government is if you're going to ask for a billion, you might as well ask for two billion. So then we move beyond uh, just the Metrolink because uh, only half of this sales tax would go towards that. Uh, and then we start adding these other things. Uh, one of them says public safety, but because of the way uh, this bill works, not one dime can go towards police officers. That's a problem. Uh, and so you're talking about increasing our sales tax yet again. St. Louis City is uh, already close to having the highest sales tax in the country, uh, and not one dime will be put towards what everybody says is our highest priority, which is uh, real public safety, more officers on the street, and better pay for uh, new cops. So if this comes up for a vote in Ways and Means tomorrow, which would be Thursday the 26th, are you a yes or a no on the sales tax? So uh, I'm gonna. I think we have an opportunity uh, to generate new revenue. We got to make sure it goes to the right thing. So what I'm gonna do is propose that we change. Um, we change the state authorization on how it is uh, being asked for. You know, they 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 ask for uh, under the state law to be able to raise sales tax that only requires 50 percent of the vote. Now that is what limits us from not being able to use this money for police officers. Instead of doing it the the right way, uh, which would require a larger percentage of the vote, uh, but then we can use the funds for actually what people want it to be used for. Wouldn't it be 66% of the vote? It would. That would be a tough sell. Well, I don't, if it goes for what people want. Now, if you can promise them that they're going to get more police to the level that we agreed, uh, that we asked for when we passed the sales tax 15 years ago, mm-hmm. it said it was supposed to get up to the level of 1,400. We never got close to that. And if we're going to actually be serious about a north-south Metrolink stop, I think those are two things that people will support if they trust that the money is going to go to what they're, what they're saying they're voting for. And that has not happened in the past, which I think is why you've seen issues, even like the bond issue, fail last year. Now, now let's, in the last few minutes, let's transition into the political dynamics of this race. Let's just get this out of the way. I think that the biggest knock on you as far as your political viability is your fundraising has not been as good as the other candidates. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know that the the reports are coming out in a few days, but it's likely you're going to be behind some of the other candidates. Sure. How is that going to affect things given that money isn't everything, but money is used to buy mailers, signs, boots on the ground, things that you need to win a race like this in St. Louis. Sure, sure. You know, I, I think when we look at the uh, at the political campaign here and look at all the candidates, uh, I think I start off with among the highest name recognition, uh, name ID. Uh, I've got uh, a strong record. 
Uh, and I think that's reflective in the polls so far. I've spent a fraction of what other candidates have spent, uh, and we are doing well in the polls. Um, you know, money is not everything in campaigns, but I agree we you need a certain amount of money to run campaign. I think we have done a lot with very little. Uh, our campaign is, you know, you, it, it's fair to say our campaign is poor, just like many of the, of the residents of the city of St. Louis, but we know how to stretch a dollar. Uh, and I'll tell you this, it costs a lot more, a lot more money uh, to turn um, a dud into a winner, you know. And so uh, we don't have to spend quite as much money as some of the other candidates, but we do need more money. And so, um, but I am not willing to sell out my principles, uh, to sell my soul, uh, or to uh, make false promises in order to, to appease the money folks in town. You know, we have seen some candidates um, sell out their principles. Uh, we have seen some candidates uh, take money from people who have a direct interest in maintaining the status quo, uh, and I'm not willing to do that. So I'm relying on people power. Uh, we have uh, more donors. Uh, they don't give as much, but we have more donors than almost every other candidate campaign. My donors may give 20 bucks at a time, uh, while others give five and 500 to 1,000. Uh, but we have a people-powered campaign, and we have volunteers that are excited about the opportunity for real change in our city. Not just not just somebody who gives it lip service, but somebody who has walked the walk and uh, and talked the talk for uh, for many years. And I think uh, you know I think this race is wide open. Uh, the largest percentage right now is undecided. And so going into the, the, fa the final 30 days of this campaign, uh, we are going full speed ahead, knocking on as many doors from one end of the city as the other, and I think we have a good shot of winning this race. Um, I wanted to ask you about, so you're talking about people-powered campaigns and like that you have a lot of name recognition, but I want to look at the folks who are new to St. Louis specifically immigrants yeah. and new citizens in the area. I mean, we talk a lot about population loss, and the immigrant community has been a big beacon of hope for hopefully revitalizing that. Um, what are you doing to let those communities know that you are the best option for them? And like, what does that engagement look like as you're doing outreach in those communities? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the uh, immigrant population in our community is critically important to the future of our city. Uh, the energy, the entrepreneurial spirit, um, uh, the, uh, especially the uh, prizing of education uh, as a way to opportunity uh, is something that uh, not just St. Louis was built on, but America was built on. You know, my family is, uh, is half Bosnian. My wife is Bosnian. Uh, I've got a lot of family that is very active in the campaign and really working uh, the Bosnian community. I, I spent a lot of time over there. And so we are uh, really working uh, to make sure the city of St. Louis has a, a Bosnian first lady. Uh, but beyond just the Bosnian population, the uh, Hispanic population, uh, the Asian community, uh, the uh, Somalian community, uh, these are all folks that right now I think have been frustrated that they haven't really had a voice or representation. Uh, so when I talk about being a mayor for both sides of Del Mar, what I'm talking about is being a mayor for all the communities that make up our city. Uh, and I think, uh, I think, you know, we have to do a better job of retaining that population. You look at the Bosnian population, for instance, you know, we have already lost about half of that population. They moved out to the county uh, because the quality of life in the neighborhoods in the city of St. Louis have not uh, met the standards. And so as we improve our neighborhoods, we will do a better job of being able to uh, retain that population and better serve them, just like the rest of, uh, the rest of our city. So I, I'm asking this of all the candidates. I'm going to ask an inverse question to Lida Cruson when she's on the show. There are four major African-American candidates and one major white candidate being Cruson. And there's a feeling among some political observers that 
the four candidates are going to split the very large African-American vote in this majority African-American city. Now, I've heard people push back against that. They pointed to the fact that Vernon Betts won kind of a similarly constituted race on Kim Gardner as well. Mm -hmm. What's kind of your feeling on the the fact that you, Louis Reed, Tashara Jones, and Jeffrey Boyd may cancel each other out and hand it to Elijah Cruz then? So one, I think that's a very uh, binary way to look at, at this race. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not just about black and white candidates. You've got a lot of different candidates with very different experiences, uh, very different ideas, uh, very different, different histories of service. Uh, and so I don't think that uh, just because of her race, uh, Lida Cruson locked down the white vote. Uh, I, I don't think that that is how our city, I, I, I hope our city is, isn't that bad. And I'm hoping that's not the case either. Yeah. But if you look at past elections, like let's say the mayor's race in 2013, you look at a map. You've posted this map before. But what I'll tell you, yeah, it's, that's it's, very, what I mean. it's very different, though, because yeah. I think uh, what Francis Slay uh, has done over his 16-year uh, career has, uh, has really focused on taking care of his base. Uh, he has kind of operated from a 50% plus one platform where he takes care of his base and just enough to win. Uh, and, and many other people who uh, have maybe not have supported him politically have been left out in the cold. Now, Lida is not an incumbent. Uh, and, and I think our city, I think most people recognize that our city uh, has really pressing needs that have to deal with mostly uh, racial disparity, uh, poverty issues, uh, issues that Lida does not have a lot of experience with. And so I think that's why, even if you look at the polls now, the vast majority uh, of voters who have decided are not supporting Lida Cruson. Uh, I think our city needs a mayor who can speak to all sides of town, who can go to any community, uh, in any neighborhood, any time of day, uh, without bodyguards, without all the uh, pomp and circumstance, and actually talk to people. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I am, am more confident uh, and have more hope about the people and the voters of St. Louis and give them more credit than to say uh, they will just vote blindly on race. And let me say another thing is that, uh, and this is what I, I wrote an editorial in the St. Louis American about this. Uh, it is not a bad thing to have uh, uh, qualified African-Americans running for office. Our focus needs to not be on the number of African-Americans running for office. It needs to be on the number of African-Americans voting. Mm-hmm. And if the numbers are as bad as they have been in the past, that is that the turnout among African-Americans is only 20 to 25 percent, then it's very unlikely the city will see another African-American mayor for many years. I think that has been the case, though, is that um, people just haven't felt that there's been candidates that had their back. or Maybe they felt like they hadn't had a choice. Well, clearly they have candidates now uh, with a record. Uh, and uh, and they have choices. So I'm hoping that we get a much higher turnout, not just among the African-American population, but among young people, among immigrants, among women, uh, people who have felt that they haven't had a choice in these races before. They need to understand that this is a critical election to the future of our city. And if you want to see the city go into a different direction, you finally have a choice. Well, we want to thank you for spending 48 minutes and 42 seconds with us. This was great. <laughs> And uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Rachel on Twitter at? At R. Lipman, two P's and two N's. Follow Jenny on Twitter at? J-N-N-S-M-N. It's my full name without any vowels. And if people haven't started following you yet, (laughs) which doesn't seem to be many, given that you have lots and lots of followers, how would people either find you on the World Wide Web or get in touch with your campaign? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Antonio French, and you can hit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash French2017. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. 